0: So in the early days, people who played Pac-Man, Space Invaders, Asteroids, uh, or who were playing primarily on Atari consoles didn't really think of themselves as gamers. And indeed, the games were not marketed towards gamers at all at that point. They were uh, marketed as a form of family entertainment. So you'd see advertisements where there's a whole family playing Atari games together.
1: This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Before we get started, I want to say thank you to everybody who has downloaded episodes so far, offered reviews and ratings. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I need your help. Uh, If you like what you hear and you believe in what it is I'm up to... Uh, telling stories from the perspective of youth and educators about this work. I'm asking a favor to uh, get on, take a minute of your time and rate and review the podcast, which in turn will help me go and raise the interest that I need from sponsors and supporters to cut more episodes and continue to do no such thing. In order to do that, I have a little incentive. Between now and Halloween, I I am giving away a Google Pixel XL phone. It is a pretty amazing device. It's 128 gigabytes, the big one, um, and I'm excited to give it to listeners of the podcast. Here's what you do. Go on. If you haven't already, offer a rating and a review of the podcast. Get on Twitter and I want you to link to your favorite episode or to the podcast uh, website, which is no such thing WordPress. If you do that, throw a hashtag on it, no such thing podcast, and I will automatically enter you to win the Google Pixel. On Halloween, my three year old is going to pick from a hat of all of the users who have tweeted us out. I hope that you enter. I hope you win the Google Pixel. Most of all, I just want to say thanks. Now on with the show. So my favorite title as a kid was Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? And I would play it on our Apple computer in the 80s at my home. And a lot has changed since then. But this episode is all about games and gaming. And... I'm lucky in that I get to keep up with what's happening uh, through my son and through students of ours who come through the doors at mouse and who I get to talk to through this podcast um, because there aren't enough hours in the day for me to play all of the games that I would love to get my hands on uh, now because there's just so much out there and there's so much that's exciting about where games are going. This conversation is with two young people Geneva Hayward, who is um, an amazing young talent. She's a senior in high school. Last year she was a, a grand prize runner-up for the Games for Change Student Challenge. She also won a category award for the STEM game, the National STEM Game Jam uh, Game Challenge. And um, it's just a uh, she's wait, you're gonna hear more from Geneva Hayward, but she is such a pleasure to talk to. And Mikel Ford, who you met in episode zero. Mikel is, just in addition to being one of my favorite young people who has such an important perspective on the world, is also a budding game designer and um, has some amazing things to say from where he stands in his sophomore year in the design and technology program at Parsons. You also get a cameo in this episode from... Uh, Naomi Clark, who is an amazing game designer herself. She's been a part of more than three dozen titles. Uh, She's an assistant professor at NYU in the Tisch School. She's sort of a gaming historian and uh, somebody who just knows a lot in this space. I feel smarter after having talked to her. For those who like what she says, I encourage you to check out a little power-up episode that I'm going to release after this episode of uh, a Skype conversation that I had with Naomi. Without further ado, check out this conversation with Mikkel and Geneva. So much fun. Game on. (laughs) How long before we met, did you start designing games of your own?
2: Oh, I started like last year during my sophomore years when I had the NYU program and the main reason why I didn't really make games before is because I didn't know that programs were free and I thought it was like a lot of money and would be super hard and then I had these classes and specifically the point where I was like I'm going to make games on my own we had a guest speaker come in one day named Maddie Bryce and she was talking about like um, people's personalities and games like how their choices affect who they are and talked about um, one specific program called RenPy for visual novels. And because I was like, oh, hey, I can draw and I can learn how to use this program. And so I started making visual novels with my friends a lot last year. And this year is when I finally got into using Unity and mm. stuff.
1: That sounds pretty incredible. The, uh, you mentioned a couple of things I want to come back to. The NYU program that you mentioned was called what? Do you remember?
2: Oh, NYU's Future Game Designers.
1: Future Game Designers? Yeah.
2: Program. And yeah. you
1: said it was a free program?
2: Yeah. After school? Oh, it was on Saturdays.
1: Saturdays. From
2: like 10 to 5. It, was, it went on really late. Amazing. It was fun, though.
1: Amazing. Um, Mikkel, we have heard in previous episodes, Mikkel was a guest on episode zero. Um, and you, you explained a little bit of your history with game design but give us the 30 second start to now now. um, about where your journey has gone as a game designer
3: okay I went from not really knowing what game design is to knowing this is definitely a thing that I'm that I'm going to pursue in the future Uh, I had a representative from Ibeam come to my school in the 10th grade it took me a while Ended up going down there, and on the first day, we took this very, very little, uh, very, very pivotal trip in my history to NYU Poly. And it was after that that I decided, yeah, this is gonna be what I'm gonna do. So from that point onward, uh, I eventually joined Mouse and gained some very well needed design uh, coding philosophy there, uh, and then worked up my portfolio so that I could uh, apply to Parsons and thankfully got in. And now at this point, it's just growing exponentially growing. Mm. What do
1: you, what between the two of you, you both happen to be people who are thinking about education beyond high school in a very specific field. How do your folks feel your families feel about this as a pathway?
2: Well, like they already knew that I was gonna go down the artsy path because of like the high school I go to and I've just been drawing a lot. Um, And so they've just been really nothing but supportive really and a lot more supportive like during recently when I won the awards and everything.
1: Right, tell us about those awards.
2: Oh yeah, so winning the Games for Change Student Challenge, like being a runner up for the grand prize and also just winning the climate change category and then also winning the national STEM competition, which was really just amazing. Um, and yeah, like when they had the award ceremony for like the Games for Change student challenge, like so many of my family members came, like they took up like a whole row, like in the museum. And it was really funny too, because the fact that it was at the Museum of Moving Image and I like interned there last year as well. So it was like, oh, wow, I see this like the same people I was working with now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: As educators, we talk a lot about. When we design a program that's aiming young people toward a very specific field like like game design, we wonder how well supported that pathway is beyond our own program so that if Geneva comes to Mouse and does a program in lower Manhattan around game design, do you leave us and then have ways to apply that or ways to continue that pathway forward with other programs or other institutions. And from talking to you two, who are kind of one end of the spectrum, right? You guys are two who started fairly early on, decided you want to do game design and are really pursuing that to the extent, Mikkel, you're now an undergraduate, Uh, you're Geneva applying to schools already. It feels like, from what you're telling me, that you had a lot of supports on that pathway. Does it feel that way, or does it feel like you really had to sort of do your own thing and, and find ways to get the support you needed to follow your passion?
2: Yeah, um, I honestly feel like like I had that support. And I feel like that's mainly because of my school, because like most of these programs that I get to know about and these internships, come through my school like people like teachers or representatives from different programs come and tell us about what they do or if they want like students and if I were if I was in a different school and I didn't know about any of these programs it would be a lot harder if I was like wow I want to make games so yeah
1: do you want to shout out your school so that they get, <laughs> they get some yeah. credit
2: my school art is high, the, the high school of art and design oh. yeah. in
3: Manhattan yeah yeah cool uh, for me throughout this uh, this journey it starts with like parents where my my parents' whole thing was playing video games was what inspired me to want to make them so spending you know when you're like in elementary middle eh, in the beginning of high school is like you're spending five hours a day just playing video games and your parents are like, oh my God, if you don't get off that game <laughs> right now, I swear to God, kind of thing. Just because they don't really see the, it's not productive, right? It's not a productive activity, just playing games. But once I said that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things I could do, the old, what do you want to be when you grow up thing? I didn't really know. There was a lot of things I could have done. I was thinking about playing tennis uh, at a pro level at one point in mm-hmm. my life. Even playing baseball at a freshman level in my life. Um, But in the end, it ended up being game design just because I wanted to know how these things that bring me so much joy are made and if I can replicate that and try to do things like that myself. So after I became a game designer and got into that field, it was a combination of my peers and my mentors that really... They were the support for me, uh, moving on. So, like I said, I, ha- I give I give a lot of credit to the the iBeam course that I took in the uh, in tenth grade, just because so much of the things that were said and the topics that we learned about, I'm still learning and still it all comes back. It's all useful information that I've been using for the past five years or four years. Um, How about you, Geneva? The role of mentors in
1: pursuing what it is you want to do how how important have they been so far to you
2: well like my parents yeah they've been like oh we want you to do your best and just continue doing what you're doing and like um really for mentors I'd say I like when it comes to like schooling and like just having programs I'd say I'd have to like my illustration teacher from my school like, he's been there just helping me explore different mediums, explore how to get better with, like, drawing and things like that. And then um, the new game design cl- classes that I have now at the this program called the School of Interactive Arts I, like, started earlier this year. Mm. And that's where I learned Unity. Like, the teacher there, like, he's really been pushing me for it and and has been, like, saying, like, oh, you should have this together for your portfolio and this and this and that. And what's even better about that program is because, like, you know how you are saying um, about that support, about after these people leave certain programs, what happens next? Um, I know that with the NYU program, like, some of the teachers there are like, oh, yeah, we're trying to figure out wh- what we can, like, email kids, because they, they have been, like, and still in touch with me and, like, some of my friends from okay. there. Yeah, and so um, the program that I'm at now, SIA, they've, like, teamed together so that they can just send kids to like this program now because at NYU we were just using a little bit of game maker Mm -hmm. and hasn't been like delving that deep into programming and at SIA it's like (laughs) a lot intense yeah
1: Uh, for those who don't know the acronym SIA is Is
2: School of Interactive Arts yeah Yeah.
1: did either one of you have a game that you've played that really set your mind to the idea that you want to be a game designer
2: well, like I've played like so many games like I like I always knew when I was younger that I loved playing games. I was like, oh, I love these experiences. And sometimes like when you beat games, because I didn't start actually finishing any game that I ever played till like probably when I was like about to finish elementary school. That's mm-hmm. when I was like, oh, you can beat games. <laughs> right. And how I felt afterward, it was like, oh no, what next? Because now I I beat the game, and I don't know what to do with myself. Um, and like those experiences, I was like, wow, I wish I could do that. But I felt that way about animation at the time because I didn't know I could make games. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it was a possibility. And it's not because it's not because of the fact. Um, the main reason I didn't think it was a possibility was because I just didn't know how. I didn't know where to turn to. I thought only big game studios like Nintendo and stuff would, mm-hmm. you know, make games and that's just it. Mm.
3: It's very difficult for me to pinpoint hmm, uh, one game and one franchise just because I was more focused on enjoying the experience and not really thinking outside the box of how do how is this made or how could this be better or how can I do something similar? Until I played a uh, Metroid Prime on the Gamecube, and it was more of a question of, I had this weird uh, connection of video games with code. But every time I thought of code, I thought of like binary. And mm. then when I thought of binary, I thought the matrix. Mm. So <laughs> it go, it goes my thought process was the, in going in that way. So it was like, how is this rock that I'm shooting at? A combination of zeros and ones that has been plugged in to a program that is Mm. plugged into a piece of hardware that is attached to many different pieces of hardware Mm -hmm. that then connects to my TV kind of thing. And that kind of blew my mind. And it was from that point where I was like, I should figure out how this is done. I don't understand. Like, I love this and I love playing this and I love the experience, but I don't understand any of anything about it. Mm. And I... I wanted to know everything about everything. That's how I was when I was very young. Still am. Uh, I wanted to know everything about everything that I cared about. Just because I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just I just mm-hmm. want to know everything. Um, so yeah, you could say Metroid, uh, Metroid Prime One. It was uh yeah yeah. Cool, cool. Metroid, experience.
1: Metroid as a franchise, been around. Yeah. It was it was a strong game yeah. in, in its first uh generation. Yeah.
3: It's gonna get a new game. Yeah. in
1: two days, <laughs>
3: man. Two days. So are you still
1: on it or are you
3: Oh man you over it? Oh, nowhere near over it. I'll go back and replay that game right now. <laughs> like, I love I love and it's supposed to, it's a single player like action adventure and those games aren't meant to be replayed, but I just love playing it and I love the way the story rolls. T- so Let's talk to educators
1: who may have no experience in this area. Tell me about genres. Genres. So so within games, for the educator who's like, I don't know, all my students are talking about MMORPGs. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about genre for a
3: second. Okay. So... Let's see. Let's think about some of the biggest games that are out currently, right? So we have uh, Overwatch is one of the biggest games to drop within the last five years, right? It's an FPS. It's a first-person shooter, yes? It is also a subsidiary, if if we're talking genre, not not gameplay. It's a Mm -hmm. subsidiary of another genre of game called MOBA, which is Mobile Online Battle Arena, just because it is team-based, it's a team-based first-person shooter. There mm. are not many of those. They started dropping like two of them recently. But anyway. Uh, but MOBA is a genre that can also be applied to multiple games like League of Legends, which is also a huge game. Dota 2, Heroes of the Storm all fall into the MOBA genre. And these are, f- well, at least MOBA is a fairly new genre, unlike RPG, which has been around since NES days. mm mm-hmm. uh, NES is Nintendo Nintendo Entertainment Entertainment System. System. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, What else? There's so many. We did uh, first-person shooters. MOBAs. MOBAs. RPGs. Role-playing game. Role-playing game. So I've learned just by experience that RPG can take many forms, but it always comes back to the turn-based role-playing game. Uh, Things like... Pokemon is a very, very well known role-playing, turn-based role-playing game. Final Fantasy has been known to be one of a very famous turn based role-playing game. Uh it involves you have a set of characters. You may or may not get to create your own avatar within this world that you're role-playing in. Uh-huh. And it's mostly combat against other other NPCs, non-player characters within the game world. Got it. Yeah. Uh, So like the Civilization franchise? Civilization. uh, You see, games like that kind of fall under a different category called uh, RTS, which stands for real-time strategy. If you know of the really old school Warcraft games, Mm -hmm. not World of Warcraft, the old school Warcraft 1, 2, and 3 are RTS. Uh, Think of games like... Tower defender, tower defender esque games, where it's you build things and defend against oncoming enemies. Mm-hmm. That's RTS. That's real time strategy because yep. it's things that it's not. It's the opposite of turn based, where it's not like you go, the enemy goes. It's like everything is happening all at one time, and you have to be able to respond to things in real time. Hence, mm-hmm. real time strategy. Yeah. Uh, racing, self explanatory, uh, although it can take different forms, whether it be two D, three D. Uh, Mario Kart obviously is like the big, at least for me. Anyway, it's my favorite racing game. But then you have things like Need for Speed, uh, <laughs> the old, uh, the old Cars movie games even fall under that category. Right. Uh, things like that. Geneva, do you have a favorite genre? I'd say rhythm
2: games, honestly. Rhythm games. <laughs> I don't.
1: That's not even a a. A term I've heard. Wait, really? Okay, so rhythm
2: games, basically, like, they come in all types of different ways, but basically it's just, like, pressing a button to a beat for music, basically. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I've played
1: played rhythm games.
2: Yeah, but, like, uh, I guess something that hopefully a lot of people understand, like, think of Dance Dance Revolution, like in arcades, where you're stepping on buttons to the beat. Right. Like that. Yeah. Uh,
1: Guitar Hero. Yeah. I obsessed about for a little bit. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I love Guitar Hero. Uh, what, what others are there? There's, there's a lot. So DDR, I know so many. Dance Dance Revolution. Um, Guitar Hero, I know.
2: I know there's also Rock Band. Yeah, Rock yeah, Band.
3: DJ uh, Hero. I yeah. wish they would drop a DJ Hero 3. I love that game so much. Oh, I never oh, got to play. I got to play it. It's great.
2: Um, gosh, there's a lot. I, I don't know if Just Dance would be. <laughs> oh, right. definitely. That's yeah. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That
1: counts. I would yeah. say that counts. That's a big one. Yeah. My, yeah. my Instagram is. Uh when I have like nieces and nephews in my Instagram feed, I get a lot of uh Just Dance. Just dance wow. play yeah. photographs. Like
2: my cousins <laughs> love just dance and now we have all the just dance Wii games. Nice That's ridiculous. Wow. <laughs> nice. Yeah.
1: at what point in your life did you start to identify or or maybe you don't uh as a gamer? Somebody might ask you like, "Hey, what are you into?" And you'd be like, "Oh well, I'm a gamer."
3: Would you say that now, even? Yeah,
2: um, definitely. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> my
3: my entire life, like I like one of my earliest memories is like as a child is when uh, my mother bought me my GameCube, and I just remember that she, I had never owned my own system because I would either play my dad's PlayStation One or go to my grandmother's house and she had a Nintendo she had an NES um, so they knew I loved playing games anytime I could sneak something in like on a computer or something I would try to do it when we had internet um, but it was like when she bought me that game I was like this is it Like mm. I have my own system now it's kind of like this this ownership over the thing that brings that identity of like a gamer out and then you're just, just like I was a gamer before I owned the system mm-hmm. but now it was like that's when it was like pinpointed in my head like this is it yeah I made it. I'm I'm curious, though, Genevieve. you you were like,
2: yeah, not so much, sort of. like, because, like, when I was younger, I was just like, yeah, I like playing games, but I wouldn't go around, like, just saying I'm a gamer until probably, like, elementary school when I finally had my own DS and I would play Pokemon with my friends during recess and stuff like that. Um, Man, I've been playing games for so long. Like, one of the things that I remember is that because my dad had like a bunch of computers because he'd fix computers and I'd be playing like games on Disney Channel's website Mm -hmm. (laughs) when I was younger. And then also, I also, when I got a GameCube, it was like really big for me because I had my little sister and also one of my dad's friends' kids was over and she brought it home. And I think the first games we had was like Kirby Air Riders and Super Smash Brothers Millie. And we still have it now (laughs) Mm -hmm. and still play it. And so, yeah.
1: Yeah. Do you think there should be
3: games for girls or boys, like gender specific?
2: No. Mm -hmm.
1: Nah.
3: No. Nah. It goes against. It goes against play. Especially, especially in in a digital space, like it just goes against. uh, For me, it goes against the. It not that it goes against. It has no place. It has no place in the in the digital play space. It has no space. It has no room. Just, we don't need any of that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it's like if you if you like um, a description of a game or like the way it looks and feels and how it plays, then just play it. Like shouldn't matter who you are, really. Yeah.
1: But there's so much about games that's about marketing.
2: Yeah, oh, of course,
1: of course. So um, even if for a game designer there was no gender specific intention. Marketing may have totally different plans. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm interrupting here because everything from Geneva's pause when I asked her, does she identify as a gamer on, made me want to call a subject matter expert. So I did. Naomi Clark uh, is amazing. And so here's what she had to say about gender and identifying as a gamer. Hey, Naomi, how are you?
0: Hey, I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I
1: explained the whole thing, and she cleared up a
0: lot. That's a great question. Um, first of all, I think we have to kind of ask what the term gamer is, right? So in my mind, someone identifying as a gamer uh, is, is a phenomenon you wouldn't have even seen before 1985 or so. Uh, it's it's a word that was, yeah, it was... a. Not in common usage before that time. If you sort of look at its history, the the usage of that word remains relatively flat, uh, you know, from all the way from the beginning of the twentieth century when, you know, of course, people were playing games and there were board games around and things like that. Uh, and then around 1985, suddenly it goes up, and between you know, over the next twenty years after that, uh, it suddenly becomes ten times more commonly used. So, uh, what? Why did that happen? Well, 1985 was also uh, around the time that uh, marketing for games changed. So yeah. there, there was um, a small video game industry before that. There were people making games, you know, four digital platforms in the late 60s, early 70s, and then as you got into the age of the the home microcomputer uh, in the 80s. People started to make and sell these things, Uh, but the emergence of a gamer culture didn't really start until the last half of the 80s, and there was also uh, a big surge in the number and type of of platforms and the number of companies making games. That was sort of after the, the Atari crash. Uh, So in the early days, people who played Pac-Man, Space Invaders, Asteroids, uh, or who were playing primarily on Atari consoles didn't really think of themselves as gamers. And indeed, the games were not marketed towards gamers at all at that point. They were uh, marketed as a form of family entertainment. So you'd see advertisements where there's a whole family playing Atari games together, Uh, you know girls and boys playing together, uh, you know, around an arcade machine or whatever, I think if you went into an arcade at the time and saw the people who were really intensely playing Donkey Kong or Pac-Man or, you know, Galaga, other early games probably was more predominantly young men. Uh, And I think as in part as a result of seeing who was gravitating towards this technology, towards the types of games that were being made, uh, a, a positive feedback spiral started and i don't mean you know positive in the sense that it was really wonderful i mean that it kind of just escalated itself we went around in a feedback loop um and so the companies who were marketing games saw like, oh, you know what, we should really double down on just this one audience that seems to be the most interested and started target marketing, which also became more common in toys and books in this mm. period of time, right? So toys got a lot more gender segregated during the 80s uh, for, for kids of all ages. And the same thing really happened with games. And so by, you know, 1990 or so, you see these um, advertisements on television and in print where it's all about this kind of adolescent, so It was mostly like you would see a 13 or 14-year-old uh, with a spiky early 90s haircut uh, with a Nintendo Power Glove, and it was all about how <laughs> you would be like really badass and like ultimately right. cool, and you're wearing some like wraparound mirror shades uh, or whatever, right? <laughs> so that suddenly became the image, and that was the first image of the gamer. Uh, so it's not surprising to me at all hearing uh, from people that grew up from, yeah, who were young kids in the late 80s all the way through, you know, if they grew up in the 90s or the 2000s, that the as a marketing category, the gamer was considered to be a young boy or man, usually maybe from somewhere around 12 years old uh, all the way up uh, into 20s and sort of getting older as, as uh, the average age of someone playing video games got older too. Uh, so... It was invented. The whole idea was invented to to try and separate boys from girls. Right. So we that it's not surprising at all that you if you asked two people with an identical history of playing games, that the that the man would say, Yeah, I you know grew up thinking of myself as a gamer and the woman wouldn't, because that's exactly what we were all told to do.
1: I'm so glad I asked. Naomi, thank you. We're gonna to return to the conversation between myself and Mikkel and Geneva. If you are as excited about what you just heard from Naomi Clark, uh, I highly recommend take a look at the power up episode that I'm going to post after this one of the whole conversation with Naomi. We get into uh, a couple of other questions, especially you'll love what she has to say about uh, the word gamify and whether or not we're doing it justice in the context of education. But back to the conversation.
3: My entire final for high school, my high school final project was about the disparity of uh, women in video games, uh, in the, in the community, Not necessarily the, the culture, mm-hmm. but just certain specific communities. And I was talking about the fighting game community mm. specifically. So even to this day, I still bring it up all the time. I interviewed a bunch of people, including some of my friends, some outside people, and it all came down to, I still don't have a concrete answer. But everybody tells me the same thing, where it's like, games in general, video games in general, are maybe such a has a a male stigma to it. It's a male thing, right? But competitive gaming and fighting games specifically is a genre that is so highly dominated by dudes that it's like. A lot of women feel like I'm not even going to attempt to get into it because of a lot of the because of the culture, because of the fighting game culture uh, to give an example, I have a very good friend of mine, Caroline, which you know uh, me and her both play smash. I go to a lot of smash tournaments mm-hmm. within the city Caroline, who I know because she's also a uh, a student and somebody who has worked with us at Mouse. yes. Uh, A couple years back, me and her went to a Smash tournament in Chinatown. Mm. And when I asked her, I was like, I'm going to go. Do you want to come? And when I asked her if she wanted to come, I didn't just mean come and watch me play. I meant, would you want to compete with me? Mm -hmm. It's because... As competitor, I feel—I was I was throwing gender completely out of the conversation. I was talking as competitor, like, I'm not going to win. <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe 100 people are going to enter. I just want to go for fun and to, like, raise my skills. Do you want to come with me? And she says, oh, I'll come, sure. But she meant more like, I'm just going to come and watch and, like, be in the space and watch mm-hmm. you play. I don't want to enter. And it's always when I say I'm going to go to a tournament and I'll ask her, like, do you want to come with me? You can come you're not excluded from the space. She's like, I don't want to get embarrassed kind of thing. But it's not necessarily, just like Neven was saying, it's not necessarily about, for, for everybody, it's not about there's going to be uh, 50 billion dudes there, it's more like I don't want to be in an uncomfortable space, period, mm. kind of thing. So I'm still, <laughs> I'm still researching this subject. Because it just seems like there's a lot of stigma attached to gaming, especially the fighting game community, which I, like, fight for (laughs) because that's my favorite community. But um, it's there. It shouldn't be there, though. There's no reason for it to be like that.
1: Yeah. If you guys had to pick one thing about where games, game culture, uh, game design is right now in in sort of today's world if you could pick one thing to change about it uh so so maybe it's a direction that it's gone that you wish it hadn't maybe it's a a barrier that's been put up what
3: would it be i have so as much as i love as much as i love uh gaming in the community And the developers and this whole culture that we've built, there are so many things that are wrong. Uh, There are things that people do wrong when it comes to marketing, things that people do wrong when it comes to something so simple as character design, things that people do wrong within the community, the way that they treat other people based on how they feel about certain topics. But if I had to pick just just one, I only get one. The most important to you. The most important to me.
1: Maybe it's one that you feel like you are most driven as a young designer to try and correct.
3: Cost. And I say that because when things are at a certain price, there are a lot of people who don't have access. Mm. And when a lot of people don't have access to such a thing, to to a thing that is a multi-billion dollar thing that has so much influence and that has built such a culture around it, then there's people that because of financial problems or perceived financial problems, they feel like they can't do it. And so they don't. And so you're missing a huge ton of people that could be in that culture and that could change these other things that I'm thinking about. Mm. Um, I say that because every single time this is huge conversation about console versus PC, the argument for console, having a, buying a, a gaming console, whether it be a, a Switch, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, over going out and buying and building a PC mm. is I want to have controllers that when friends come over, they can play with me. Um, it's portable. I can bring it to somebody's house if I so wish. And price point you can buy a Nintendo Switch right now for $330, including tax. But if you wanted to build a decent, not a highest end, not the best PC ever made, if you want to build a decent PC, you would have to throw in about 600 bucks, which is a lot to ask for somebody who can go out and have a similar experience for $330, mm-hmm. plus games, plus peripherals, blah, 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 blah. Um, if we could bring the price point down for certain pieces to build a PC, then imagine how many more people would have access to that and have access to far, far more games. And in my opinion, I'm going to be very biased here, even though I have a Switch Mm -hmm. and I have a PC that I built, the PC is the superior platform in terms of, not just in general, in terms of graphical quality, which some people don't care about, frame rate, which some people don't care about, choice. There's a far, 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 Like drastically bigger um, Database of games you have access to When you have access to a PC any internet Wider range of peripherals You can use a mouse and keyboard You can use literally any controller on the market Things like that But all of these things cost money And a lot of them are not free Software may be free Uh, Controller software may be free Controllers are not free Uh, A lot of independent games 80% Eighty percent of independent games that are on console are also on mm-hmm. PC. So so what do you think if we bring down cost, what changes? It changes the I, I say cost because there are many other problems in the community. And mm-hmm. I think those are problems that we can all talk about and that can be in the conversation more if more people are in the community. Mm. And more people are not going to be in the community because cost is barring them out. Mm. Um, like I said, you can go out <laughs> and buy a Switch right now for $330. You have to buy games, which are $65.31 if you want a, a AAA game. You have to buy extra controllers. Uh, the Joy-Cons, like I said, specifically for the Nintendo Switch, there are two separate controllers that you plug onto each side. Mm-hmm. Those are $50 each, $80 for a pair. You want to get little protective cases, 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh Like I said, the games are $65. Uh, things like that. If we can bring the cost down, more people would want to get it, and more people would be able to take on this identity as a gamer if they had access to these things that gamers have access to. Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily have to own the latest, greatest system to be a gamer. But I'm just saying, if if we're going to perceive things this way, maybe we can help the situation now by reducing cost mm-hmm. overall. How about you, Geneva?
2: Well, like I was originally gonna like say, um, I really wish that the community, like how people like act towards each other would be fixed and better because just the way people act in just the game design community, like a lot of ta- a lot of the times I see like positive things when it comes to like indie devs and they're having their streams and whatnot. But it's, like, then there's some people who just attack other people for, like, little reasons that shouldn't be, like, a huge big deal. Like, I I just really don't like trauma, like, at all. And so mm-hmm. I just want to avoid it.
1: What's an example of something that comes up like that?
2: Um, uh. Well, like, recently I've been, like... Um, I, uh one of the recent fighting games that I've been like looking at is called Cerebral and I was like, Oh, this looks really cool and so I was watching one of their streams and I found out about one of these artists who draws like these really muscular women and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um and a lot of people like just keep attacking the art well not like literally attacking, but like just saying, Oh, what are these monsters and all this stuff and I'm like, just let them have their creative Creative, like.
1: Mm. So they're criticizing. I, is the artist? Uh, uh, do you know who the artist is?
2: It was like Zedig. That's was the name, like Alexander Zedig. And I just like I've been like just following this person now ever since. It was I think it started like last week, and I heard that they're trying to make like a dating sim with the characters mm. they made, and I'm like, oh, hell yes. <laughs> but, um,
1: That's pretty funny.
2: Yeah, but. I just wish people weren't so, like, just always going after people's throats. Like, if you don't like something, just go somewhere else. Right. It's if you, don't, if you don't like a game,
3: you don't have to play it. Like, exactly. You don't have to watch it kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. That's, yeah. A, that's a huge problem as well. So do you think this kind of gets
1: into a question of whether art imitates life or life imitates art? Right, because I wonder, in a case like the one that you just described, where this is about um, gender and a bias that you know maybe male gamers have or even some female gamers have about the female form and and what that should look like and what it should look like in games. Um, I think there's a lot of people, adults certainly, who are concerned about their kids playing games who fall on one side of that argument or another where some of that bias is coming up because of games. And then there's another camp who might argue that all of that is just a reflection of what's really what exists in our society already. Do you guys have an opinion?
2: It's like, um, when it comes to, like, games and just art in general, like, I feel like everyone should have their own creative freedom when it comes to things like that. Like, okay, pe- sure, many people don't look, real- all these girls don't look muscular in magazines and stuff, but, like, some people like how, like, this looks. and mm-hmm. So if you don't like it, it's, what are you going to do about it? Well, not, like, to make them, like, more angry, yes. than you <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I know what you mean. Um... But yeah, like I just feel this artist should have more creative freedom and like shouldn't have to be like oh we want this to look like every stereotypical mm. like, every all of this and whatnot. Um, yeah,
1: it's great. You guys make me make me uh, think a lot, and I feel like we could we could go on in this conversation for there, a long there's time. there's a
3: lot to be said. I mean, especially when you bring. Uh, Children to the equation, the way that yeah. we view children in this culture. Uh, when I was six, seven years old, I was playing Grand Theft Auto Three on the PS2, and nobody told me anything. That is a an M-rated game, seventeen plus kind of thing. If I if I walk into a GameStop back in whatever, I forget what year the game came out, and I and I said to a guy, "Hey, I want you to give me a." GTA 3 on the PS3 be like, you're eight years old. I can't get you that. You have to bring mm-hmm. an a with you kind of thing. Um, because of the nature of the game, yeah? Uh, you're able to kill people, blow stuff up, et cetera, et cetera, get guns, et cetera, et cetera. This is a bad thing for a child. And this has been an argument since Mortal Kombat days. The whole reason why we have a, a game age rating system to begin with is, um, I don't plan on having children just because I don't like the way that we treat children in this culture. I don't like the term child in terms to your, you don't understand enough to comprehend certain things. So if I give you Grand Theft Auto 3, you're going to start imitating this game, which is There's no sources to to back up a claim like that. Mm. Um, You may get ideas from it, but for you to not understand the difference between something that's digital, something that's reality, has nothing to do with the game. It has something to do with the people that are around you kind of thing, I feel. And that's that's just one topic. As far as creator freedom goes, that's another conversation that needs to be had because there are a lot of people that are attacking artists and designers based on choices that they made that have nothing to do with the consumer in a way. Like you said, like if you don't like the way that an artist draws someone, then you don't have to. You don't have to look at this art. You can leave. Mm-hmm. You can go into whatever community that you wish to be a part of, kind of thing. It's a lot of hate. There's mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of hate. Uh, well, that's a great
1: segue to kind of where. I- You know i'd like to end up is do you think that games have a role um at improving the challenges of our time
2: yeah i i sort of feel like it because like like a lot of the games that i've played recently like anytime where i'm stressed or just feeling really down and i'm like okay i turn to this game and it makes me feel better like um Last game that I played and recently beat, and I can't stop talking about it, is um, Twenty Sixty Four: Read Only Memories. It's like this point-and-click cyberpunk adventure game, and it's like super inclusive, though. Like, it has a lot of like LGBT representation and mm. stuff, and like just after playing that and beating it, because like it's sort of like a mystery because um, you're playing as someone who just like reviews, like like you're a journalist and this robot comes to your house and is like trying to figure out if you know anything about his creator or well, mm. their creator. And just by the end of the game, like after you like solve basically the mystery and whatnot, it's just, it left an impact on me just because like that game and also a game called Valhalla, they're sort of connected. And like, because of the, they're, they're so inclusive and like they have these characters that are you know, very different from just any normal character you'd see. Just made me think, wow, I want more games with like diversity and mm. things like that. And that's. You think,
1: you think that one day we'll hold up games the way that we do great novels and uh, other works of art?
2: Well, yeah, maybe. I
3: think we already do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think we already do. Uh, but not in terms of social impact, but in terms of impact in the industry. I think it'll be a while until we start talking about games that had like a huge social impact. Because when you talk about games that had impact, we're talking about breakthrough games that are in a book world record somewhere, or in a history book somewhere, or in a game design book somewhere. Games like Super Mario Brothers that, after that, now every game has to involve jumping. Mm -hmm. Games like Mortal Kombat. Now we have to have a system that makes sure that people understand what kind of content is going to be in their games, uh, things like that. Yeah. As far as social change. Well, what what I mean is,
1: if you ask anybody about the art that's impacted them mm-hmm. the most, they jump to, uh, you know, oh, when the first time I read Catcher in the Rye or. Mm-hmm. Uh, You know, a raisin in the sun, or heard, uh, you know, great jazz things. Things that uh, you can you could win a Pulitzer Prize for, or um, and my question is kind of do Do you see a future where we hold we hold games in reverence the way that we do more sort of air quotes classic forms of art?
3: Mm. Mm. I do. I feel like, like I said, I feel like we do, but I just, I don't have any, any examples off the top of my head of, uh, people love great stories and video games are just, can be used as another narrative form. Mm-hmm. Um, games like, uh, there was a Nintendo DS game that came out a while ago by Score Enix called, about years ago, called, uh, The World Ends With You. And that is like a cult classic game because of the whole storyline. You're like these these Japanese kids, and you start it in Shibuya, and this is where things go, and none have to figure out. I have a media myself, uh, but I have a copy. Mm. Um, and games like that, games that have a great story. People tend to remember, but it's just it's the same as any other art form mm-hmm. in the way that there are always things to take away from it. And part of me. I blame parents <laughs> for kind of telling their kids that you shouldn't be doing this because it's, you're not, go read a book. Mm-hmm. When it's the same thing, it's just interactive. And I think once we are able to, people should be writing articles and praising this game that they played because it taught them something because that's what games can do. Mm-hmm. Would
1: you believe it though if I said there are a lot of, cultures and there's been a time when parents thought it was a big waste of time to sit around reading books. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but I believe you, nah, really. What kind of books are you reading? <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm, I'm reading a book right now about,
1: uh, it's called A Shepherd's Life. Mm. And it's a great book about uh, a guy about my age who grew up in England, the son of a shepherd and many, many generations of shepherds in northern England. And he ended up going to Oxford and becoming a writer, obviously, and somebody who was obsessed with books. Uh, but his family didn't really—he uh, he, he describes a place where culturally, um, you know, he grew up in a, a town where— you know, you, school is a thing you do until a certain age and then it becomes less practical because, uh, you know, we're, we're an agricultural culture. Um, and so nobody nobody respected or understood why he would spend time reading books. It was kind of a waste of time. And, and that is seldom now uh, that that kind of thing happens culturally hmm. and really in, in only very specific Places, because I think we've we've come to hold education in a different light than we once did. But uh, there was certainly a time when that was a more widespread idea that uh, messing around with in in a world of ideas and words or pictures uh, was a waste of time. So, um, so I don't know. I guess maybe I'm I'm sharing my own bias, which is that <laughs> I think I think it, there will come a time um, where we come around. If there was a game that described or where the mechanics of the game and the goals of the game were about growing up today, what would the game be called?
2: Hmm, what would be named? Um, the Journey to Find Yourself?
1: The Journey know. to Find Yourself. If I came to you, Mikkel, and was mm-hmm. like, I'm from the department of something fancy <laughs> and I'm going to give you a million dollars and I want you to create a game about growing up and the journey that you have experienced but in order for me to give you this million dollars I need a name for name. this game
3: I need a, name. I need a title I a name it Seed Seed. I name it Seed. I name it Seed. I would name it Seed. I love yes. that. I would name it Seed. You yes. want to share why? I, because of the journey of a Seed. So you start out, you come from, you come out of something else that has already been grown. You're put into the dirt, maybe, and you're used in order to for somebody else to gain something. So they take care of you. Just until they need something from you. <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah. <laughs> this is getting sad. So, <laughs> so you put into the dirt, which is I, I don't. Dirt being seen as a place to start from, not being uh-huh. seen as you're disgusting. Right. Uh, you take things that are around you and you use it to eventually grow. You eventually come out of the dirt, out of the bottom, out of the beginning. And you start to sprout. Now, whatever seed this is, you don't get to choose, obviously, what kind of seed right. you are. But I give you a seed. I give you a random seed in the beginning of the game. I kind of do that. Yeah. yeah. If,
1: as long as there are uh, multiple pathways. and it,
3: Infinite pathways. And
1: you don't have to lead me down the one where yeah. uh, my wherever i came from is just using me until i until i can <laughs>
3: until i can serve <laughs> <them>. <laughs> kind of thing. You're, like, oh, you're at this point okay so now we're gonna take this off you that's right and we're gonna use you for this right, right, and then we're gonna take your seeds and we're gonna use them for something else <laughs> kind of thing you you may not be planted at all you may be planted to grow into a beautiful thing that blooms for hundreds of years it could it could go in infinite because, i like that yeah, yeah. A final
1: question for you both, if you had a word or a phrase to describe what it is you want to contribute to the world through your work, your game design, what would it be?
3: Perspective.
1: It's great.
2: I just want to like make games that are just more open-minded really
1: so it's interesting you guys both have a a similar theme to what you're what you're hoping to contribute and i can't tell you how much i am rooting for the two of you (laughs) and uh and also how much uh respect and faith i have in the two of you to accomplish that um I think this is kind of the beginning of a really important chapter for game design. And I think if, if educators and institutions do their part to figure out how to strengthen pathways so that everybody is getting an opportunity to tell these stories uh, and create these experiences, I think we do have uh, a really special future to think about. So um, thank you guys for the time. Before we sign off, do you guys want to point anybody listening to uh, yourself on social media? Do you want to uh, off your
3: website? Anything else? Uh, Website is currently in production, uh, so not yet. You can hit me on Twitter at Onyx Emperor and nothing else yet. (laughs) I will put Onyx Emperor
1: in the show notes for the episode. Geneva?
2: Um, Well, on... Twitter and Instagram, and also on Itch. I am Jensuta, Jen G E N S U T A. Um, yeah.
3: Thank you both for your time. Thanks Thank for the invite, fam.
1: <laughs> this podcast was produced in partnership with City University of New York's Master's Program in Youth Studies at SPS. Learn more at sps.cuny.edu and Mouse a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us at mouse.org. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero and young person who still owes me a chance to beat him at one-on-one. Find him on SoundCloud at air Tindy beats. The podcast is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.wordpress.